I, I think I've only ever read The Shining. I think is the only Stephen King book I've ever read in my life. And I read it when I was like 25. So yeah, so you I weren't do like remember a, it. You weren't like a childhood Stephen King reader. Ricky, I feel like this is something we've been over many times on the show. And that's that I'm a good boy and I don't do bad boy stuff. So I wouldn't... I wouldn't dream of reading the kind of bad boy stuff that Stephen King writes in his dirty little paperbacks. Like, no, I didn't. I didn't read. I didn't read it. I was busy reading 19th century adventure yarns about the British Navy. That's the kind of thing I read. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, like the Horatio Hornblower books. I read those when I was in high school. Yes, I did. That is very funny and very fitting. Yeah. How old? How old were you when you read your first Stephen King book, Ricky? Uh, well, if if this is a podcast of honesty, one in which we communicate with each other uh, with truth, I, I have mean, never... I try to make it that, but you seem very against that. So you know, like... well, I'm a born liar. I'm a born liar, and uh, that's a hard that's a hard habit to shake. I'm working on it. I'm working with my therapist. I'm working with my family. I'm working with my wife and my child, and we're trying to shake it. I see, um, Ricky. I'm so, like Ricky. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you don't. You do not. You don't have a wife and child. I'm sorry to say. Right. Trying to shake it. Haven't shaked it completely. Um, but I've never read a Stephen King book. He almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs, and the fibula in the right leg is fractured too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. Meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're gonna be just fine. I'm your number one fan. And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Annie, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Any regards. Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. God, I love you. Camilleri, and I'm joined by your other host, Chris Chafin. Say hi, Chris. Hey, it's me, Chris Chafin. Nice to see you, everybody. That's that's enough. We're talking today about... I just want to say that it's the <laughs> holiday season, and, you know, we're all alone this holiday season, and just to have this little connection that we have between just between you and me, Ricky, and, and also between us and the listeners, it's just so important. Absolutely, and I can't think of a better movie to talk about this holiday season than the <laughs> snowbound log cabin... Uh, located Misery, starring oh James Caan, Kathy Bates, a wonderful Richard Farnsworth, a delightful Richard Farnsworth. He's great. Um, written by uh, Bo Goldman, Hollywood screenwriting royalty, directed by um, Rob Reiner, um, M- MSNBC libtard royalty. <laughs> um, and uh and uh, yeah, for the first Castle Rock movie that uh, was produced, that was the name of Rob Reiner's um, production company. This was the first movie they produced. It was named after Stephen King's, you know, town that, that eventually became the show. 
And a brief bit of trivia to get out of the way. Stephen King wouldn't let anybody direct this movie but Rob Reiner. He put it into the contract when he sold it that the only way that the movie could be made is if Rob Reiner produced or directed it because he was so pleased with how Stand By Me, based off of his short story, The Body, uh, came out. Um, I've, got, I've, I've got a lot of feelings about this movie. <laughs> Um, a lot of feelings about this movie. I wish I, I, I probably should have written down in order the how we were going to talk about them, but instead, you know, we'll God. just do what we always do, which is just fly by the seat of our dicks and just uh, aimlessly do whatever. Yeah, yeah, aimlessly do whatever and hope that the three or four people on Twitter, uh, you know, Ben, uh, thank you so much for listening. Oh, don't no, <laughs> this is too real. You can't do this. <laughs> um. Chris, uh, did you see this movie when when it came out in 1990? I was six years old. I didn't see it, but I I I remember like a number of things about it based off of the years and years with which the movie was parodied and talked about. Yeah, so the, exactly the same for me, Ricky. Like I would have been eight years old when this movie came out, so obviously like too young to see it. Uh, and but it was such a big part of culture. Like so many of these movies we've been talking about on the show, where it was like. This just you it was impossible to be alive and not have parts of this movie make it to you like I mean the main thing being like Kathy Bates is crazy and also the like sledgehammer to the legs thing like that is that is the thing from this movie that was everywhere and I actually had not seen it until I watched it for the movie for this show rather and um, I was just dreading it the whole time <laughs> the whole time I was just waiting for this fucking sledgehammer scene to happen it was making me so uncomfortable the entire time I was watching it well, especially because of her performance, right? It's not like if you know the sledgehammer scene is coming, it's not like every every scene isn't setting you up for that, right? So if you're watching the movie for the first right, time right, and you right, right. and you don't know the sledgehammer scene is coming, you know, you're just kind of watching the movie and you're like, "Oh, this is kooky." But if you're if you know it's coming, the movie every scene is literally a step towards the sledgehammer and you can feel it escalating just to that coming. point. That you yeah, know exactly. it is that you know it's going to happen. It's so weird. Just to just to backtrack a little bit and to kind of um, macro scope it, I guess a bit. Uh, bird's eye, you know, God's eye view. On, uh, just to on, macroscope uh, it. Wait, uh, hold on, uh, Ricky. Let me get my macroscope out of the cabinet. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. So bird's eye, bird's eye view of um, uh, of this, which is like, and you kind of said it. There was just, there's, again, there's just this period of time in movies, which I don't think we realized going into this podcast, like we recognized that 1990 had a number of good movies and it'd be fun to talk about them, but just how top of the mountain movies were at this period of time. The budgets were, I think, were like starting to get bigger than ever and being devoted to um, not super so original, so original stories, so which yeah. could craft like iconic mythic characters, and so therefore, like so many of these movies, I just remember being parodied to death and having like lifespans of years and years following oh their yeah. their release. Whereas, like, I, I just don't think I don't know. I'm not a teenager, but I don't know if like you know a kid who's like 15 or a kid who's like eight in 2020 or, or in 2017 is going to, at the age of 35, remember the head stomping in, in get out or the, um, you know, maybe not like, the head oh, stomping. Hey, look, it's, it's just like happy death day. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think that those, you know, those things are made to be consumed uh, and sort of let go of, even though get out is a kind of an iconic film. I don't think because there's so much content, 
and it's all kind of so cheap to consume it's not held on to and 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 it's not held on to and discussed and part of the discourse for for as long so so many of these movies from 1990 feel like they 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 live forever more so than anything after in a way i mean kindergarten cop home alone misery i mean those are just like and then there's like a bunch more those are just the ones i'm remembering off the top of my head good fellas good fellas yeah i mean like it's crazy the things that are still such a huge part of culture are all from this year it's really very odd um and i think i think it has to do with a lot of stuff right like it's like it's the fact that you know movie making was still taken very seriously as 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 an art form and not just as a business at the time right and there was yes. some idea, even like even the grossest, most commercial people, you had to pretend that you cared about the art of making movies, you know, like in a way that you don't now. Like, I mean, think of like the executives in the player, right? Like, even though they're just gross, like money sharks, all they're talking about is like, you know, really telling an interesting story, which I mean, people do still, but not as much. But also, I, I think you have to talk about like the rise of like marketing and advertising in, in movies. And I think it's just it's just really getting to this huge point around now. And it's from the late 80s to the early 90s. I mean, you really have to look back to like Batman, like the first Batman, right? Like that's just such a huge right. event across all of culture. You know, McDonald's meals and commercials all the time. And there's no way to skip commercials in life at this point. And so if there's a commercial for something, you just see it over and over again. And there just were so many movie commercials around this time. And I think that is why so many of these things are in culture, is just seeing the commercial for the movie. Seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger right. go, it's not a tumor. But it's not that you even saw the movie. Maybe you saw the movie two or three times, but you saw the ad like 10,000 times, you know, during all the TV that you watched. And like, that's really what's happening. And there's still, then the, but the content is still good. So it does stick in your brain, unlike a shitty movie you forget about, you know? Well, the content, there's, there's, a, there's a forced craft to a lot of this content. And granted, a fair amount of the content that we've watched, a number of the movie, movies, Sibling oh, yeah. Rivalry, for instance, directed by... Destiny, yeah. <laughs> sibling Rivalry, directed by our current director's father, Carl Reiner, oh, right? God, right? Had yeah. like absolutely no craft. But I think you're right in the sense that the 90s and really starting with 89 and into 90 is where you see the sort of budget and the marketing of original movies, not comic yeah. book fair, even though Batman is that and we're starting with Batman. But I mean, also a lot of original movies. Exist. That was like, you know, people didn't think you could make comic book movies in the 80s. Yes. Like, it was just like nonsense. It was garbage, you know. But like you're really starting to see them kind of come together at the top of a, at the top of a peak, right? And people are yeah. also, and I, I do think there's also the third pillar of that which is the way that people were consuming movies you went to see the movie and you sat through the whole thing you rented the movie and you most likely sat through the whole thing right and then they were on tv when you had 20 channels at most in like 1996 or 7 or maybe 50 channels at most in 1996 or, or 7 yeah, I remember there was that so, Springsteen song like 57 channels and nothing on and you're like wow I don't, I 57 that, channels you know but I, I do I do think the way that content was consumed, we talk about monoculture all the time, but the way that content was consumed both via monoculture and via just like the like how you had to sit with movies for the most part, as well as both the 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 craft that went into the movies and the um, the marketing are the are, are we're reaching this kind of like apex here where all of these things are making movies 
these these long lasting cultural touchstones for 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 decades afterwards. I totally agree, but can I also just say I was just looking it up. So the the that song, Bruce, the Bruce Springsteen song, it's from an, an album called Human Touch. It was recorded between late 1989 and early 1991 so basically that song was written about the period of time that we have been covering in the podcast so yeah it's completely completely pertinent i mean and if you think about right now 57 channels is not that many no it's like no channels at all it's like laughably small 57 channels like jesus christ like you're not even into the good channels yet you know and you're and you're also like looking at 57 channels in 1990 i guarantee in 1990 if you had 57 channels and you lived in florida where you're from or massachusetts where i'm from like 20 of those channels were scrambled or like you hadn't your parent the cable like the cable company hadn't dealt created made a package with that basic cable company or something you know yeah, what like, i had a like lot of was it would be like one channel was actually like three different channels because nobody yeah. had like enough stuff to for their real to really have a channel so it was like partially a home shopping network and like partially a cartoon channel and like partially like a weird movie channel you know yeah exactly um but on that note so we have um rob reiner's misery which we have uh, diverted from significantly. More like but my I... misery. Oh. <laughs> uh, fuck. Okay. Pull it back. Uh... <laughs> so, Chris, do you remember... Obviously, I remember seeing this parodied everywhere. I remember hearing adults talk about the ankles. Um, I remember yeah. maybe even sneaking a peek at the ankle scene when it was like someone had rented it at a parent at a friend's house or maybe even when my parents rented it, but it was infamous. It was, it was infamous. Adults were talking about it everywhere. Um, do you, I'm an only child. So I only talked to adults yeah, <laughs> and, listened, no, ditto, and like spy, spied on their conversations. Um, I'm raising you, one now. I can't wait to have a weird only child. It's going to be great. We're going to like go to the ballet oh when she's eight, but like I am not your... like a little daddy daughter thing. It'll be like, she'll be like, hmm, I'm not sure about her form. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I am your future. I am your future, Chris. Uh, so do you remember the first time you actually saw this movie? Yeah, no, it was, it was, I just, honestly, I had never seen it until two days ago. Really? I, a, yeah. I'd never seen it. I'd never seen it. Again, Ricky, I, I don't know why I have to keep saying this, but I'm a good boy and I don't go in for lots of this bad boy nonsense. And like, no, I had never seen Misery. I mean, the, the answer is- Bad I was boy scared. nonsense? This is a Rob Reiner movie. No, I know. I, the, the honest answer is, uh, well, you know, it just was nothing I ever really cared to watch, I guess. But also I was scared of watching the ankle scene. It was scary to me. And it was scary to me two days ago. Like I was saying before, I mean, the entire movie, I was on the edge of my seat and I was so- like, like nervous about when the ankle scene was going to come. And I was kept imagining what the situation was going to be when the ankle scene happened. And like, I kind of knew, but also I kind of didn't. And then when it, when it happened, I actually fast forwarded through it completely. And then I was like, Oh no, I should really watch it. And then I rewound it. I had to rewind it like three times to get it to the right spot. And then I watched it and I was kind of like holding my hand up on part of the screen. I was being such a fucking baby, but it's because it was like imprinted on me when I was literally a child. I was so afraid of watching this scene. Dude, you are such a pussy. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You couldn't do the... You fast forwarded it? You're almost 40 years old. I know. I know. (laughs) But you know what? Now that I'm the age that I am, 
I, I have, I just feel empowered to where I'm like, look, if I don't want to see it, I don't have to see it. You know, like, we saw, we, we saw adult. green, we saw green room together. There's multiple, there's multiple scenes akin to the ankle being oh, broken much in, worse. in green room. Much worse in green yeah. room. Well, I guess I didn't know they were coming in green room, first of all, That's but true. I enjoyed yeah. green room. I liked it. You know, I thought it's a, I think it's a fantastic movie. Did you but, like, did you like misery? No, I hated it. I thought it was awful. Really? I, I hated it. I hated it. From like the very beginning, I hated it. Everything about it is weird. Like, um, I don't understand so many of the choices. Like, it, it starts off, it has the credits of a 1990s television show, which I guess yes. was more common in the movies at the time. But it, it has it, to the level where it says, and special appearance by Lauren Bacall. And you're like, special, this is the face. She's just in the movie. What are you talking about? Um... But like, yeah, but then it's like, you know, the lighting is so flat. It does have a very like kind of TV look to it. I, I, I always I forget, get mixed up in my mind that uh, I forget that James Caan is the star of this movie. I, I always remember it being Paul Newman. And I, I think James Caan is awful in this movie. I think it's very weird the way that he makes every acting choice. Like deep into him being an abused hostage in this situation with Kathy Bates, his only reaction is to like make tough quips, which I'm like, dude, you're like a hot, you're like a murderer's hostage, and he's always like, took you long enough. Like, what is going? Like, what is going on? Um, right, like no matter how how disturbing it gets, he's still like kind of sarcastic. Yeah, because like, it's it, like the, it feels a little yeah. like he's doing a Bruce Willis impression. Yeah, it's like he's being kind of sarcastic. He's being like a tough guy, no matter how like mortally in danger his life seems to be. But I think that goes back to the thing we haven't really gotten into yet, which is like the main you know thing wrong with this movie. I would say is like the way that the movie is treating the Kathy Bates character, who like well, obviously. Hold on, hold on. Let's get into that in a minute. I want to stick to the James Con thing for one okay. second. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, because uh, just a quick fact about the movie. Uh, William Goldman said in his book, Four Screenplays, and of course I am reading something from the IMDb trivia page, fuck off. Uh, <laughs> the role of Paul Sheldon was offered to Warren Beatty, Robert De Niro, Michael Douglas, Richard Dreyfus, Harrison Ford, Morgan Freeman, Mel Gibson, Gene Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, William Hurt, twice, Kevin Klein, Al Pacino, <laughs> Robert Redford, Denzel Washington, and Bruce Willis. All who said no, oh except except for Warren Beatty, who, <laughs> hold, hold on, and this for you 30 years later heads, uh, really harkens back to our conversation about the hubris of Warren Bra Beatty in our Dick Tracy podcast. Oh, I, bet, I bet I know what you're about to say. I bet. Beatty read the script and said, after, like, he, he, he wasn't sure about the movie because after the hobbling scene, the scene where the ankles are broken, the audience would think that the character was too much of a loser. <laughs> and then, and then, and then he, and then he never said no. William Goldman has said to this day, he doesn't think Warren Beatty has ever said no. They just had to move on because he kept stringing them along. Oh my god! Like it's fucking ridiculous, we, dude. I, we I don't thought have you were to get say... no. <laughs> We don't I have to get into another long conversation about Warren Beatty, but I oh think God. that our like ideas or our criticisms of Warren Beatty based off of Dick Tracy are once again kind of proven by this like little accurate. like little 100%. thing. Yeah. 
Hey, uh, if I let some broad break my legs, isn't everybody going to think I'm a big loser? <laughs> what is this? What is this? Uh, it's going to look like I'm a big loser. It's going to look like I'm a big loser. What is I, I I don't know. I don't know. I'll get back to you. I'll get back. But I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm like this, I'm a guy, you know, like, and she's going to, what? She's going to, what? With, with, what? She's got a little hammer. Tink, tink, tink. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have a, I, I, you're going to have a woman break Warren Beatty's legs. Uh, nobody's Baby gonna believe it. Legs. Nobody's gonna believe it. Like, what? A lady can break my legs? I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So they approached everybody. Con Richard clearly... Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus would have been great. This would have been a Dreyfus... much better movie with Richard Dreyfus in this part. Dreyfus said no. Uh, and apparently, you think? I think he would have been. Like... I think he would have been fantastic in this part. Yes, I, I do. But also. A, another like perfect Richard Dreyfus piece of trivia. If you know anything about Richard Dreyfus, this fits very well into his personality as well. He narrated the stand, or sorry, Stand by Me for uh, Rob Reiner, and then said no to When Harry Met Sally, and felt bad about it, and told Rob Reiner he would do whatever was next. Rob Reiner sent him the script for Misery, and he said no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Um, that very, rules. That rules. Very, I mean, I don't, it's not a very good movie. I don't think it's not. It's not well made. You know what? I kept thinking not to get off James Con, but like he just okay. So more about James Con. Like he, like I was saying, he just has exactly the wrong energy for someone who is being held mortally. Like their life is in danger every second. They're coming to the realization they could be murdered, and um, they're trying desperately to do little, you know, furtive things to like get their freedom. I didn't, I didn't buy it for a second. I didn't buy any of it, you know? Like, even when he had these, they keep showing his disgusting purple legs, like the entire part opening of the movie. And like, he's like supposed to be so in pain. And I was like, I just don't fucking buy it, man. You know, like, like there's a scene I, where he, a, after Kathy Bates shatters his legs with the sledgehammer, the next time we see him, the next time we see the two of them, she's out in the yard and she waves at him through the window and he flicks her off. And she goes, oh, you. And I was like, what is going on in this movie? Like, like he, she, he just, she just brutally, she like severed his feet like the night before. And this is the level that they're interacting on. I, I, I agree with you, but I also got, I also laughed at those moments. I enjoyed some of the camp uh, of the, my favorite moments were probably the campy parts of the movie. And I kind of disagree with you about James Conn's performance. I you like it. You like it. I like it. I like oh it for like I, I. But I agree with all of your criticisms. I and and I, it took me a while to sort of get into the tone of the movie. The first thirty minutes, I think I had texted you like I'm having a really hard time with this yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. And I and I really was. But then something. Then I got into. Something got me into it a little bit more, and I think it was. Well, one, it was mainly Kathy Bates, like top-notch, incredible performance, and we will dive into that in a minute. But also it was James Caan. I just thought that he was doing the only thing he really knew how, and it was kind of funny to watch him play in in this world. And as far as my knowledge goes, it's really the last big studio picture that, like, Caan does. Oh, like, he doesn't. I, I mean, I don't know if that's true. I could look it up, and you know, maybe I should for the sake of this, the the the, the integrity of this podcast. Yeah, right. But uh, I, I I can't think of anything in the '90s that he's particularly well known for, you know. 
I'm looking it up right now, Ricky. So just just vamp a little bit. Well, we'll just cut out this whole part. Ricky, remember to cut this. Remember to cut this. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, he's got lots of credits, dude. I'm sure. But like, does he have anything that is like as well known as Misery? No. No, not well. Uh, Ricky's in honeymoon in Vegas in 1992. Sure, he starts getting like the the villain role, the small role, and that's partially because he there's a story that he showed up one day on the set of Misery so hungover he ruined the entire day's scenes, Ooh. and he had to he had to like to in contrition had to offer to pay the studio for for the entire day's worth of filming. Because wow. they couldn't use anything, like Rob Reiner had to take him to dailies. Like, yeah, Rob Reiner had to take him to dailies and be like, "Look, we can't use this." And Khan apparently had to apologize for 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 filming. Also, I should say, Khan is on this week's episode of Marin, one of this oh, week's yeah. episodes of Marin, and I tried to listen to it this morning, but it's just I just could I just couldn't do it. So sorry, listeners, I don't have any facts that you Lock could glean from, from from Marin. Um, I guess the last thing he did that was super, super iconic would be Elf. Like he is in his role in Elf. Fair, fair. But that is also the kind of movie that like someone who's no longer a leading man has aged out of leading man and is not like a Warren Beatty or a Nicholson at that point. And is like, you know, maybe only trusted to appear on set a number of days and like a, a few, a small amount of days. And to also be like, um, you know, able to handle while 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 on set, like that doesn't seem. You know, that's misery to me. Seems like the last like sort of big studio leading oh, man yeah. role he gets. And I, obviously, he was not the first choice <laughs> we're talking about. Like, no, very far down the list. Very far down the list. You know what I kept thinking before we get into talking about Kathy Bates, who is you know, it's like a this is the whole thing of the movie is not just Kathy Bates, but the way the movie is treating Kathy Bates. Um. I kept, here's what I kept thinking. So I was talking about how I thought James Caan was tonally off. And I, I thought a lot of the movie was tonally off because it's it's trying to create this kind of, you know, it's this paranoid, very tense atmosphere where it's like, you know, he's trying to secretly move around the house and he's trying to hide things in his mattress. And it's very like, it's supposed to be very tense, right? But I just didn't, I didn't get that feeling at all from watching the movie. I didn't feel tense like when he like, bumps into the table and catches the penguin figure or whatever. Like, I no, it's really schlocky. It's, it's schlocky. It's bad. He's like, I, but here's, he's like, like, wait, here's what I want to say. Like wheeling, I, he's like wheeling around the house and it's like, dun, 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 dun. He doesn't, look like, like, he like, he doesn't look like he gives a shit also. No, like James he does Tom not Tom ever. Like, but <laughs> I kind of like, I sort of enjoyed that. Like, I know that the movie maybe isn't on the same page and it's totally off, but I enjoyed this sort of like weird, like, like, Almost anachronistic performance like within the context <laughs> of this genre. Yeah, I mean, I kept so what I kept thinking, like, and I never would say this, but like, un, I kept unfavorably comparing this to like a Ryan Murphy thing because I was just thinking, like, if Ryan Murphy had made this fucking movie, like, it would be the choices would be much clearer, and the emo, the emotional level of the movie would be much more deliberate. You know, it wouldn't just be like flat lighting, like Rob Reiner, like kind of directing James Caan. You know, to just like see what happens. Like I, I just kept thinking, like if if Ryan Murphy was making this movie, it would be a horror movie. You know, and it, it would be a, scary. It is like this movie. I think is a testament to the power of. Excuse me for this sentence. 
Um, uh, I should shoot myself after I say it. Oh my god! I'm so excited right now. To the to the power of celluloid, because (laughs) it is it it it, like Rob Reiner has never really been that visually talented as a director, right? But he had a period of hits where he was able to sort of hire great DPs. And the DP of this movie is Barry Sonnenfeld, who, in my opinion, no matter what you think of him, is a visually brilliant, daring cinematographer and director, right? Like, The Addams Family, at this point, his directorial debut, seems just like a kid's movie. But if you go back and watch that movie, it's kind of a visionary kid's movie that only one person could have made. And he also shot... Miller's Crossing, right? You know, he yeah. uh, he 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 has shot beautiful movies. Uh, yeah. Beautiful movies, and the the there's one shot in this movie that he takes credit for. That when you're watching the movie, is like it's the one shot where you're like, "Whoa, great shot! Where the fuck did that come from in this movie?" And wait, can and I guess? Sh- is, is it the shot of like there's just a shot kind of of the Rocky Mountains, like in the middle of the movie for no reason? Is it that? No, it, no, it's not that. It's the no. shot where Richard Farnsworth is like out on the road looking for the car, uh, looking for James Conn's oh, crashed yeah, car. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the, the camera sort of like pans and catches Kathy Bates driving away and then like moves, like almost like sits on the hood and like moves moves down the road with her. Um, and it's a great shot. It's like, it's, it's really well designed. It's really kind of, it's pretty complicated. And like, that's his, that's his work in the movie. Everything else is like Rob Reiner is like, I mean, I get, you're competent, I guess, but like you said at the beginning, it feels oh it feels a little like television. At it's times. very TV, yeah. I mean, it's just like this. It's just indifferent. Like it's indifferently framed. Oh. The lighting is very flat. You know. Oh, but excuse me. Why I said the power of celluloid is because Rob Reiner has been this in his entire career. He's never been a visual director, but his movies now are are shot digitally, and they are so stunningly flat. So Im- <laughs> so visually inert that um, I, it proves that like if you had a half decent DP or were even shooting like TV in the late eighties, early nineties, and you had a budget and you had uh, a, 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 and you had thirty five millimeter film, you could make it look cinematic. You know, yeah, That's- no, definitely because it does have something. I mean, the beginning of the movie is James Connie's you know, he's finishing a novel, popping the champagne, and then he gets out and drives down this snowy highway in an old Mustang. And then he flips the car over. And that's the beginning of the movie. I mean, listening to, listening to soul music. Listening to soul music, yeah. And it's like, it doesn't look terrible. I think that part of the movie doesn't look that bad. It's really once we get to the Kathy Bates' house, which they just, he seems like to completely be befuddled as to how to shoot, you know? And it should have this feel of this like, claustrophobic very small kind of horror thing like there's a there's a whole thing where james con like drops a hairpin and then has to pick it up and that's supposed to be like this very like fraught you know it's so small but it's so important and he could get caught at any time and you don't you don't just you just you're not getting any emotion from that because it's just like a shot of a hairpin on the ground and then a shot of james con going like And then a shot of his fingers picking it up. And you're like, okay, great. I guess that problem got solved. You know, like it's just, it's just so poorly put together, I think. 
Like, yeah, the majority of Khan's performance, which you just reminded me of not to go back to that, is more exasperated than terrified. Yeah. Like, he's like, oh, another fucking thing I got to deal with. Like, that is right. just like... Which, I mean, which I guess kind of makes sense not to, to I guess, to kind of, to sort of play devil's advocate, but makes sense in the con- within the context of this is really a movie about a guy who hates his fan base. Right. I mean, well, this is the thing also, right? So this is another one of my big fundamental problems with this movie is it's it's basically just Stephen King saying, like, I hate everyone who likes me. And, you know, the end of the movie, basically, the end of the movie, the very end of the movie basically says, if you ever tell a celebrity you like their work, you're basically the biggest piece of shit in the world. <laughs> you know, like... Well, this movie, I mean, and now I think that's a good segue into talking about Kathy Bates, no? Yeah, sure. Uh, which is that this movie fucking hates, um, like, the the rube non-celebrity. This, to me, honestly feels like, you know, why they hate us. Uh, oh God. But, like from the perspective of Trump supporters, and like it's you know, just if such some, a fucking like, grab bag of just like anything that Stephen King thinks is like D class A, you know, circa yes. 1989. It's like, oh, she's eating Cheetos in bed, and she loves Ugh. Jesus, and she watches the Dating Game, and she says Jeepers Creepers or whatever <laughs> fuck she keeps saying. Yeah, and like you're, I, look, I I was team. I I, w- I I was team Annie Wilkes the whole the whole movie oh, of course, and the of course. and then and then like the deeper that like she got I thought that her Kathy Bates's performance was amazing um, I know that like this is this is skipping ahead a little bit um, but my my favorite part of the movie which I guess I'll just say again later when when it's asked of me for our three questions you know for those thirty years heads out there we do three questions at the end of every podcast yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. we all know Ricky we all know. <laughs> Look, I'm just trying to establish our brand, Chris. All right. Um, yeah. It's like James Lipton's, you it's know, like questions Lipton, for heaven. Exactly. It's like yeah. the Proust questionnaire, but it's our version. It's our own little kind of saucy take on that. <laughs> but like lazier. <laughs> <laughs> um, the moment in the movie. Uh, wait, can you guess? What, like, let me see if you can guess what my favorite part was. And, re- and it was favorite Annie part what was in favorite relation part? to the Kathy Bates, the, the awful. Kathy and Bates in the whole stuff. movie, but it is in relation to the to Kathy Bates. So oh scene, no! I don't know the scene where she yells at him for having profanity in the book. Maybe like early in the movie. No, the scene where she walks. Oh, it's very raining. forceful. Like I don't know, Ricky. I don't fucking know. I can't read your goddamn mind. Oh, you're gonna shout no at me on the podcast? <laughs> the scene. I'm trying to be softer <laughs> for you now. <laughs> the scene. The rain scene. It's raining outside, oh, yeah. and Kathy Bates comes in the room, and she has not put on makeup. She's not done her hair. She's in her robe, and James Conn, I believe, says he hasn't seen her in, a, in like a day or two. She hasn't been around. He's wondering what's up, and she says, sometimes the rain really gets me down, and she talks about suicide, and I thought I was shocked at the that the movie would even sort of open this character up to that kind of depth. Because it is solely mocking her most of the movie. Oh, yeah. And in that moment, you maybe it want the movie wants you to feel bad for her, but at the same time, the movie is going to torture the movie's gonna murder her in a grisly way and give 
really false reasons for why she is the way that she is and really demonize. I mean, the fact that they're even bringing symptoms of like actual chronic depression and, 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 and bipolar disorder into the mix in here is kind of even worse because then that's just like saying once again, that people with mental illness are murderers, right? Yeah, like exactly. this movie seems like not since psycho, which we forgive psycho because it's like nine, you know, it's like in the sixties, nobody knew fuck all about anything. It's just like a grab bag of headlines that you could throw out to like shoot some sort of like rape fantasy that Alfred Hitchcock had. And like, <laughs> This movie, it's like 1990. People know a little bit about psychology. People yeah, know right. a little bit about mental illness. Like, you can't just kind of be like, "Whoa, she's like killing people because she's depressive." Yeah, I mean, I think that. I mean, you said it. Like, the movie is so nasty towards her character. You know, I don't necessarily think that they're saying like because she's depressed and she's a killer. I think it's like, I think it's just another one of these fucking things. You know, and I, I, it's just another one of these like staples stapled on characteristics and none of them go together. And it's just various things that Stephen King thinks are, are gross and or like scary. But um, I thought ba- Kathy Bates's performance in that scene. It's great. It's great. It's great. really great. And it adds a lot of depth to, I mean, every choice that Kathy Bates makes in this movie is almost antithetical to what everybody else in the movie right. is doing because she's too good. Well, there's so many times in the movie where like, cause so, you know, she's the butt of the joke of the movie, you know, the, the, basically the movie is about like when you're a famous entertainer, really, you're just a slave to your terrible fans who love the awful shit that you make, you know, and like you have to serve them. And that's what, that's what my life is. This is Stephen King belly aching from his fucking mansion, you know, about this. Um, but so she's, she's just portrayed as being absolutely the worst. And it's, it's, you know, James Conn, we know James Conn hates these books that he writes, but it's like, she knows all about them. So like, she must suck. And you're like, don't you make these bro? Like, isn't this your, like your whole fucking life as you write these books? And it's like, but she's supposed to be gross. But there's lots of scenes where like, like, like they go on a date together kind of at a certain point. And she's kind of like made herself look like, cleaned herself up a little bit. And I got the very strong feeling the movie wanted me to find her like pathetic and sad. Like she thinks she looks nice, even though she's fat kind of a thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, but Kathy Bates does look nice. (laughs) Like she looks really nice, you know? I mean, I know she looks really, she looks excited and happy and she's like a a warm personality. Like I couldn't, I couldn't help but be like, let's can we find a way to get this woman help instead of just like demonize her and turn her into some sort of like psychotic murderer you know the majority of people with mental illness don't commit violent crimes like it doesn't and i know like what you see like what you see in the movie is not her being like she's being crazy obviously but until she breaks his legs like She's not being like really all that crazy, but then you find like the movie just has James Conn find this like notebook where she's basically admitted to killing like 300 people, you know, and it's, <laughs> that just does all the work of establishing that something is wrong with her. Do you know what I mean? Or it's like, I mean, okay, if, yeah, if you want, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, sorry. I'm done. I'm done. Please interrupt oh, me. It'll make me sound my, smarter. My apologies. Um, why will it make you sound smarter? Because I'm talking, and like me against you talking will make you sound smarter. We'll no, because of, it'll sound like it'll sound like I had more interesting stuff to say, but I just didn't get to get to it. But like, <laughs> in fact, I don't. 
I didn't have anything else. I was totally out. Um, there's a fact uh, on the IMDb, I believe, from this movie where Rob Reiner has said that the reason that he and Kathy Bates came up with for why Annie Wilkes had murdered so many infants in the hospital is because she was molested by her father. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ricky. What now? <laughs> I'm sorry. Rob I'm Reiner sorry. has said the reason what? that her, the, 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 the reason that he and Kathy Bates came up with for why Annie Wilkes killed so many infants in the hospital is because she was molested by her father. Right. And so to be clear in the film, there is the, he starts seeing these press clippings about, you know, she's obviously murdered these people. And then there's a lot about, a lot about babies at the hospital where she is. And there's a headline that says like second baby dies in ICU. And she has written on a little tab in cursive that she has put on the, the headline, another baby exclamation point. <laughs> And like, I was like, what, what pathology am I supposed to be reading into that? That she has in a very cute kind of like, it's a boy script written another baby exclamation point. Like, does she somehow think she's doing something good by killing these children? Like, well, apparently she was molested by her father and that gave her a penchant for killing babies. That, and now it makes sense. Now that you tell me she was molested by her father, it's all kind of clicking into place. You this know? kind of goes back to the way that we talk about, or so often when we talk about the way that women are depicted in, in, in movies uh, at this time, like specifically in Mr. Destiny, right? There's like this unchecked, just sort of like taken for granted misogyny, right? Which still exists now, but at the same, but is like very different. And, and, and at least even in the most basic mainstream, most in pictures has a second thought by, and by and large, right? It's not perfect. It's really great, but there's a, there's a little more thought put into it. Whereas you watch something like Mr. Destiny, it's like the women are really set dressing there for literally set dressing at times uh, for, for the men. And there is something, again, in the way that, like, this movie thinks about trauma and mental illness that I think is very similar to that and of this period of time as well, where it's like, it's like anything that is, tr well, trauma and mental illness is so abnormal and abhorrent and unsympathetic to the creators of this movie, both the novelist and the and the creators of the motion picture that it can just be an excuse for grisly murder right because it is so uh it is it is it is such a um terror it is it's a, it is such an unknown territory for them you know that yeah. she was molested by her father so she kills children Right. They don't even have to freak. think twice like, about it. Yeah, exactly. If you were molested by your father, what a freak you would be. You'd probably exactly. murder babies all the time. Like, and, like and, and this goes back to how much of a rube she is. It's like, this is, these, this is a movie made by people who've been in Hollywood now for like 40 years, one of which grew up in Hollywood. And so like, she's a freak show to him, right? She's a rube freak show. And she's also like a mental illness freak show. Like, so okay. she, you can... Yeah. 
you can do anything with her character at this point. It's like, oh my god, this fat bitch eats Cheetos in bed while watching the dating game, and she was raped by her dad. She was gonna break this guy's ankles, and she's murdered tons of babies. What a disgusting freak! And you know, you know like, what it's really coming from is it, it is you know it's coming from everybody involved in this movie looking at the people in America currently and being like these fucking disgusting sacks of garbage. Like, oh look at all these. Oh, I bet it's just like seeing like a nice lady walk by you at the mall or something and they're like oh, i bet this fucking freak is like you know she's fat and she her daddy molested her and she wants to she bet she murdered a bunch of babies like oh she's fucking sick yes yes it's so sad and disgusting and classist and like you know i mean i'm sorry that you have to be a millionaire book writer stephen king it must be awful for you you know like i'm sorry that you're a slave i mean this is the other thing like having the shining be the only other stephen king book i've read it's like this motherfucker sure seems to hate writing you know for somebody who like <laughs> his job is writing and it's made him very rich and famous like he's uh, half of his most famous things are about like oh being a writer fucking sucks ass man <laughs> like, you know what i bet um, it doesn't i bet it really actually doesn't we didn't talk about Richard Farnsworth yet, and uh, he plays the sheriff of the small town where uh, Paul Sheldon, James Conn's character, has gone missing and is presumed to be dead. Um, and he has a wonderful sitcom-y comic relationship with his wife that feels tailor-made for Rob Reiner's sensibilities. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, am I supposed to say something now? I thought you were in the middle of something. I thought you were... Oh, uh, no, 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 no. I was just saying that I, I liked... Uh, that was a part of the movie that I enjoyed. Um, To be totally honest with you, I was reading something about Terrence Malick on Twitter. So, like, that's why I was distracted. You fucking piece of shit. What about Terrence Malick? He's making another movie? No, it's uh, it's it was this interview, this kind of famous interview about Thin Red Line, where it's saying he never really watched the movie he would just edit one reel of the movie at a time. To Green Day. To Green Day, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, Kathy Bates. Okay, okay, Kathy Bates. She's fantastic in this movie. It's a role that is still, she's still playing versions of this character very, very often in film and television. Um, and it, it's very, she? She, I mean, well, I don't know. I think so, right? Isn't this kind of, she's always playing like, Kind of an insane woman, you know. She's always playing like the rube in in a lot of ways. Like even if she's like the smart rube. Well, I think no, I mean more rube. like she's like a like because the, there's a whole other layer to this other than we're talking about her being this like middle American like chimera by made up by these Hollywood elites, you know. But it's also like she's supposed to be like a terrifying woman, you know, like she's a woman who is like very sinister and is going to do like all kinds of bad stuff to you. And that's why like James Conn has to bludgeon her to death, you know, it's like to like keep her in her place. But you know, I think she plays a lot of care. Like I'm thinking specifically of like the Ryan Murphy stuff that she does, like, you know, in the seasons of American horror story that she's been in. She's always playing somebody who's like kind of like frantically tragic and pathetic, but also has a capacity for great brutality, you know? And I feel like that's dates back to this, right? This is her kind of her niche that she's established. Didn't she pl- play uh, Madame Laurie Lor- Lor- in a season in the New Orleans season of American yes. Horror Story? Yeah, 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 yeah. Chuck Laurie's mom. Yeah. No, what? Not Chuck Laurie's mom. <laughs> the woman, the no, Madame, yeah. the, Ma- the Madame Laurie mansion in New Orleans. Yes, yes, she did. Yes. 
And then she kind of gets like reincarnated in modern day and then is like a slave to a black person herself. And oh God. she gets decapitated oh God. or something. And like her, it's like a, it's like a remove my ribbon and my head falls off kind of situation. Like her head keeps going to <sighs> other places and like they like put her head somewhere and she has to watch like a black person have sex with a white person or something, you know, like that shit, that shit, that shit sucks. That shit's so lame. <laughs> it's so stale. It's so like, this is why i we're really on tangent central right now Um, yeah 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 this is this is why i mainly watch like horror movies from the 80s and like early 90s is because that was the period of time before they knew how to make a cult movie and people were just like making stuff and it felt very organic like still exploit still exploitational you know and like trying to exist within a genre often but like now like the ryan murphy stuff just feels like so just like so thirsty it's just extremely thirsty all the fucking time yeah, i, I can't i can't do for it. attention and i think it's gotten worse as time has gone on well i want to talk about the um i want to talk about the climactic fight scene between okay, james con and great, kathy great, bates great. one i loved it simply because we never ever ever in movies get a climactic fight scene between a man and a woman <laughs> <laughs> And at this point, like, it still feels kind of taboo, which made me giggle. Yeah, to watch. Uh, There's a certain point. They mostly avoid this, but there is one moment in the fight scene where he's got her pinned on the ground and he's just punching her in the face. And And smashing her head on the floor. Smashing her head on the floor over and over again. Yeah, if you don't see it very often in film, it's true. And it's it's only because of the high esteem this movie is holding its female characters in that this is possible. And then there is a, a a shot of her head hitting the typewriter yes. when he like trips her on the ground, and it is the most fake looking head <laughs> in in I think any uh, studio film, you know, maybe like after Misery, like this may be like this this is a fine head to have in like the story of Ricky O or in like fucking uh reanimator or some right. or, or something right. you know but like it's very strange in a movie with this kind of budget where all of a sudden out of nowhere you have a what looks like a goddamn blown up condom with lipstick and a wig <laughs> on <laughs> oh my god yeah well ricky i don't know if you were i don't know if you were getting this but she hits her head on the typewriter and the whole movie it's like she's been like wanting it's, it's all about writing Okay, and then she hits her head on the typewriter and seems to die. So it's very, like, kind of apt. You know, it's very poetic. Um, so I loved it on that level. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that's, like, born out of Stephen King being, like, someone being like, I love your work, and he's like, you fucking bitch, I just want to smash your face on my fucking typewriter. Can I tell you, Ricky, I don't think this looks like a fake head at all. I think it's just, like, not a hard typewriter. I think it's Kathy Bates really doing it. I don't think it looks fake at all. crazy? I don't think Are it you fake crazy? At all. I'm looking at this still that you sent me, and I'm remembering watching it in the movie. It's just like I don't know. I don't think it. I don't think it was fake, dude. It is 100% fake. It is ridiculous looking. You have to watch it again. I don't know, brother. I don't know, man. You have you have you have to watch it again. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait, I found it. Come on, this looks insanely stupid, and it lingers on her. Yeah, because it's a good effect. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm going to watch it again. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it looks that bad. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's a fake head. I don't know. Who can tell? It's in motion. It ha it's only... Oh, yeah. Wait. Something about the way it falls off. <laughs> something about yeah. the way, the way <laughs> it falls off. <laughs> the typewriter, I take it back. It definitely looks fake. It's the way a real person would never. It just got like it's like a like it's like a like it's like a pillow. Like it just hits it yeah. and bounces off in a way a person would never in a million years do. It's it's like too light. It's like too light of a head. Yeah, you're right. You're you're definitely right. Oh my god. All right, Chris, what's your favorite part of this movie? Well, it's hard to say, Ricky. In all honesty, like this was the one question that I left blank when I was <laughs> filling out the thing at the end of the movie because I was like, I don't fucking know, man. I mean, I think maybe the most genuine moment of joy I had during the movie was when the um, actor who plays the sheriff, whose name you keep saying and I forget. Richard Farnsworth. Richard Farnsworth, when he gets a huge hole blown in his chest by Kathy Bates <laughs> towards the end of the movie. Because, like, the whole movie, he's such a sweet sheriff. He's got a sweet wife. And you're like, oh, he's going to get killed, like, for sure. Because it is very much derivative of other things of Stephen King. It's derivative of The Shining in more than one way. One of them being, like, a very sweet character who's trying to solve the mystery and rescue the hero who gets unceremoniously murdered by the villain. Like, you know, you, right at the moment you think he's succeeding. It's exactly the same as The Shining. Um, but then when it happens, it's like the effect is so like, it's maybe the best effect in the whole movie. <laughs> it's like, it's like a huge, like six inch hole gets blown in his chest and just like explodes forward. And then Kathy Bates is behind him holding a double barreled shotgun, which you have never seen before in the movie. <laughs> like they have introduced a different gun. They introduced a different gun, like one scene previously, but in this scene, she has a double barreled shotgun. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. Um, uh, what about you, Ricky? Great squibs in that scene. The, Great the, the, squibs. The squibs are fantastic. And I have to say, I fucking miss squibs in movies so much. Oh, they're so wet. That's what I love about a good squib. Oh, they're so good. Um, well, yeah, I already said what my favorite scene of the movie was, which is the rain scene where Kathy Bates suddenly shows up and is um, you know, depressed to the point of a um, uh, uh, having a having a mood disorder, which I thought was um, a heartfelt depiction on her part that the movie did not earn or or have the right to 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 have it all. I mean, you know, props to Rob Reiner for keeping it in, for having it in the script, but it just does not feel like the movie is worthy of something that sensitive. No um, no nor is no the way. character because it feels. Whereas to me, it made me empathize with her. For the movie, it feels like it's more ammunition for why she is the way that she is, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, um, you mean that in like a like a like a positive way or a negative way? I mean that in a negative way, right? It's more ammunition for why she's a killer, right? Because she right, 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 right. she can't she can't she has a mood disorder. She can't control herself. Oh she God. can't control her temper. She can't control depression. So like, therefore, like, it's like sometimes you know, the rain makes me sad. She says, cur like cradling a gun and like looking at our hero, you know? Yeah, and she doesn't threaten him in that moment. She threatens herself. Right. Which I thought was uh, well, she goes on uh, to threaten him. She's like, I'm gonna put two bullets in this gun. No, she says I'm gonna put. I, it's not loaded. I'm gonna put. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put a bullet in it and kill myself. 
Is, is later, she, later, later she, she says, talks about two bullets yeah, in the gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that she put two bullets. But in that particular scene, it's all about her. And then he tries to say that he actually tries to appeal to her and say that he likes her. And she doesn't threaten him. She says, it's very kind of you to say, but I know it's not true. When you finish your book, you'll leave me. And then she doesn't threaten him. She just leaves. It's it's a yeah, it's actually yeah, yeah. it's a very smart scene in the midst of this movie. My only problem with it with it with its existence is that it's meant to um, maybe make us empathize with her, but also mainly it's meant to make us sort of have reasons for why she is who she why she is a killer. You know, right? Exactly. It's like oh this 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 broad's crazy. Yeah um what do you what is it what is the most 90s part of this movie i mean you just have to say the awful awful way that kathy bates's character is treated in this movie i mean there's so many things we've already talked about about the way that it's like her looks and her tastes and her attitudes are all just completely demonized (laughs) i mean it goes to the extent that they have her at one point say oh you always have champagne Dom Perignon. Oh, oh, I what the fuck is that? Like, like this goddamn rube. She can't even pronounce Don Perignon. Like, ugh. Oh, God, it's just so fucking gross. Like, come on. Nobody associated with this. I mean, and I guess as she's reading about this in magazines or whatever. But it's like they weren't talking about it. She's never seen this on TV before. Like, she doesn't know how to say Dom Perignon. Like, Jesus Christ, it's just so nasty. <laughs> But again, don't you think that she's doing an amazing job working against all of these yes. elements in because the movie? She like is, she is inhabiting this character, and she's doing her very best to inhabit this, like, like I said, this stapled together bunch of negative American stereotypes that Stephen King and Rob Reiner have, and to make her empathetic, right? To make yeah. her kind of sweet at times. To see the world, I mean, this is what I mean, to see the world from her point of view and to try to stitch these things together in her performance into a, like a a coherent human being. And I think she does that really well, like way, way better than the movie deserves. I agree. Like the scene that you brought up already where like they're having dinner together and it's kind of a date and James Caan is planning on poisoning her with the pill powder that he's, that he's taken uh, when he asks her if she has candles to sort of get her up to go away and she's legitimately humiliated and embarrassed that she didn't put candles down for the two of them. And she's like, it, it, it's a kind of a beautiful performance at that at times that the movie is always making fun of her, but Kathy Bates is never making fun of her. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, what um, did you think the most nineties part of the movie was? The most nineties part of the of the movie to me is really um, well. I would say Rob Reiner's direction, but honestly, that feels very eighties to me in this movie. Like this feels like it's nineteen ninety, and this movie feels like an eighties movie um, in a lot of ways. Um, the most nineties aspect of this movie to me is you know is probably the catchphrases and how it landed and the, like the, the, the way that it was parodied and also maybe the idea of the crazed woman, you know, the crazed killer woman feels like something that kind of started in the eighties with like fatal attraction. But then you have this, you have basic instinct and you have a a number of other movies, which is code for me, not knowing of any others (laughs) off the top of my head right now. But it's this kind of thing where it's like these empowered women are terrifying. Like it's this kind of, this kind of ideas running through all these different movies. Yeah. 
What? It's been 30 years since this movie came out, Chris uh, Chafin. What do you What do you think it's grown out of? Well, Ricky I think you Kamala kind of already Larry. said it, right? I mean, exactly. You, it's kind of the same answer as the last question. It's just the absolutely awful way the movie treats the Kathy Bates character and the reasons that it makes up that seem to justify it treating her this way. Like, yeah. that she has bad taste. And I mean, the movie seems to want you to believe she is fat and ugly, which I don't, I don't think, but you, it's just the, the, it's shot in a certain way. And it's, you can just, you get the feeling that the movie wants you to be like this dumb, fat, ugly broad. But it's like, I didn't think that at all looking at Kathy Bates in the movie. And and I was like, I, I mean, I don't think you could have a major motion picture now. That's like, look at this dumb fat chick. Like, I mean, that's just not appropriate it's it wasn't appropriate at the time and it's not appropriate now um what do you think we've grown out of uh similarly but i think it's like its depiction of mental illness Hmm. um because i do think that the movie knows it's depicting a mentally ill person um but it thinks that mental illness is an excuse or at the very least a clear path or reason for uh hostile violence psychotic Mm -hmm. violence and it's something that, I mean, maybe that is kind of one of the most 90s thing about the movie, but I do think that you you can back that backtrack that for a long time in movies. Um, and it continues for at least like a, a decade or two, but I do think in the last five or six years, I don't, I don't know if a Hollywood movie would really even try to get away with that. No way. Rob Reiner made this movie in the midst of an incredible run. Which is, uh, he did Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, This, and A Few Good Men. Which is like a wild run of movies in terms of uh, success. But I do think that this is a movie that, in the midst of this success, and it being a success as well, like pretty, pretty good barometer of his skills as a director. And it's, they're not... They're not particularly uh, inspiring. Yeah, you can definitely just see that it's just a poorly, I mean, it's a poorly directed movie. It's it's not plotted particularly well. It's shot indifferently. The tone is off all the time. The performances don't match. It's like, it's not great. It's just not a very well done movie. And yet, like we're saying, it became such a major, major, major part of 1990s culture. It's very bizarre. It was like, a huge deal. I mean, wasn't Kathy Bates nominated for an Oscar for this? Or did she win an Oscar? She won. For this? Yeah. She won. She won. Yeah. yeah. She Kathy Bates she won, won an Oscar, Oscar for this movie. I mean, she's good in the movie. She is good in the movie. But like, Jesus fucking she's Christ. She's the movie. You know? She. I mean, Kath, she is the movie. Yeah. Right. Like, she's a star. This movie was the, like found their star, and she carried it. And it, of course, her career has lived on for a very long time afterwards, deservedly so. Yeah, because she's doing, she's being very compelling and, and she's like working with what she has and the script. I mean, some, even the scene you're talking about, the like, this, this scene where she's talking about suicide and mental illness, like, the lines are not good. The actual lines that she's saying are, I would say, bad, you know? Like, the line is something like, I've got this gun. Sometimes I think about using it, which is like, oh, but she says it in a way that it, in, gives it more meaning than it deserves you know and it it seems very human and interesting but like on the page it's like (laughs) (laughs) uh so 30 years later uh misery 
Uh, does it stand the test of time? No, I don't think so at all. I had a terrible experience watching this movie, and I don't recommend anyone watch it. <laughs> I'm not I'm 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 not as far gone as you uh on it. I uh I grew to like it even even with my misgivings and I even forgave some of it because I did really love the scenes where Kathy Bates was so empathetic um in in the midst of this and I didn't and sometimes at, at certain points I didn't know if the movie was 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 more empathetic towards her because James Conn's character, like you said, is so kind of flat and unempathetic at times and so sarcastic. And she's so boisterous and emotional and filled with life where he isn't at all. Yeah. Um, and I liked, and I, I, I like that aspect of it. Will I ever watch it again? No. <laughs> exactly. So you agree with no. me, Ricky, you agree with me. <laughs> We'll be right back.